With that said, let me ask you now to please open your Bibles to the 24th chapter of the book of Acts. As we continue our journey through this book, we are approaching the conclusion. A few more trials and tribulations, but we will eventually, Lord willing, persevere our way through. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin reading in chapter 4. We will read the entirety of chapter 24. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. Easy for me to say, Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had summoned Tertullus, began to accuse him, saying, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since your foresight, since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation uh, should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a, a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion, that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish. 
And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent, him, sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that the ministry of your Holy Spirit would abound to us in grace today. We ask for illumination. We ask that you would soften our hearts and make us responsive to the truth. That you would deliver us from believing lies and being deceived. And that we would see Jesus in him only. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. That great theologian Yogi Berra once said, This is deja vu all over again. Now I don't know if you've ever had any moments where you thought you may have been experiencing something like deja vu, that you had been here before, you had done this before, there was some sort of resonance in you, that this wasn't your first time in this place. Paul's trial before Governor Felix followed the typical court procedures with the filing of charges, the prosecution by the plaintiff's spokesman, in this case Tertullus, and an answer from the defendant. After hearing both sides of the case, the judge normally rendered a verdict. Felix, however, found himself in a very difficult position. He was between a rock and a hard place, if there ever was one. Uh, he found himself in a difficult position, persuaded that Paul's innocence and unwilling to condemn a Roman citizen without cause, yet on the other hand, daring, not daring, to offend Jewish leadership and risk another outbreak of resistance to his rule. His purpose was to preserve the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, all over the empire which surrounded the Mediterranean. And so you have two clashes going on here. You have a Roman citizen, that's Paul, and he must be protected with those rights. On the other hand, you have him trying to pacify and mollify the Jews from Jerusalem. And so he is in an unenviable position. Uh, oddly enough, he has no backbone to do either. He grasped at an excuse to postpone his decision and then prolonged the strategy for two years until removed from office. More important to Paul than his freedom was the opportunity to tell other people about Jesus. Paul was a walking gospel man. He seized every opportunity he could to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ whenever and wherever the opportunity presents itself. Do you do that as a believer in Jesus Christ? Do you look for opportunities? Do you seize opportunities? Because if you are around people, let me tell you right away, opportunities abound. We're in the middle of a pandemic. How can we not use that as a springboard to talk about the concept of where a person's hope lies? 
Um, we're, I mean, there's hardly anything a person can bring up and talk to you about that is not in some way related to the gospel. And that is what drives Paul, especially in this chapter, as much as anything else. His trial before Felix gave him a platform for proclaiming the resurrection as the point of contention between himself and his accusers while emphasizing that his hope was taught in the law and the prophets and shared by his fellow Jews. Even more encouraging to Paul would have been the subsequent private interviews that he was granted by the governor and his wife Drusilla, in which they discussed faith in Christ Jesus and God's call to repentance in view of the coming judgment. So Paul is under trial a lot. He had it with the Sanhedrin council. Now he's appearing before Felix. Then he will go before Festus. And finally, he will go uh, before Agrippa. And so there are lots of trials, lots of happening here. But there are three things I want you to focus your attention on with, with me as we go through this together. And they are, in your bulletin, in the outline, an eloquent prosecutor, a confident defense, and justice delayed. And so, as we take our way through this, it's important to remember that there were basically three charges against Paul lodged by the priest and the elders through a lawyer named Tertullus. Now, it's interesting. It's, not, it's courtroom protocol to speak to the way, or speak the way he did to the judge, but he lathered it on thick, and he lied quite a bit in his compliments and his recognition of the authority of Felix. Felix was a rat. Felix was a killer. He was an oppressor. He was hardly anything that they said. He'd done nothing to promote peace and everything to promote oppression and controversy. Yet, uh, Tertullus, who must have been either an advocate or a lawyer, was quite gifted, quite trained. His rhetoric, as far as that goes, was not uncommon at all, even though he lathered it on thick uh, to Felix, trying to get the best possible hearing. So three basic charges lodged against him. First, they accused him of being a troublemaker. The e English Standard Version translates that word troublemaker as a plague that is, one who stirrups riots among Jews all over the world. This is a reference that is something close to being true, a fact. There had been numerous argumental conflicts and even some rioting at many cities where Paul ministered. But the implication had serious political overtones. There were many Jewish agitators at this particular point in history. And there were also messianic pretenders that were um, propagating uh, in every direction. Um, and they threatened the very peace that Tertullus had attributed to Felix. This charge was so serious that Luke himself is probably trying to refute, refute that charge in the book of Acts by showing that the rioting and agitation was the responsibility of Paul's opponents. It was not the purpose of Paul's ministry. Luke's 
account of Acts shows that competent and impartial judges repeatedly confirmed over and over again that the Christian movement was not undermining the peace or of society or the law of Rome. Secondly, they accused him of being a leader of a Nazarene sect, and the word for sect that they use here in the original language is heretic or heresy, half-truth. The word sect seems to be an effort to distance Christianity from Judaism. Judaism, of course, was recognized and accepted and respected uh, among uh, protected under Roman law. Christians had enjoyed the same protection because they also preached the God of the Bible, and in the Roman eyes, the differences between Christians and Jews were minor. Tertullus is trying here to identify Christianity as a new, unrecognized, very dangerous religion. But if anything knows, anyone knows anything about the Bible, we'll hear Paul refute that. Christianity is merely the fulfillment of, of the hopes of Judaism. The uh, third charge was the most specific of them all. And it was this. They accused him of trying to desecrate the temple, which was a serious offense. This is a reference to the belief that he had brought Trophimus, a Gentile, into the temple courts in clear violation not only of Jewish law but also of Roman law which allowed the Jews power to punish offenses against their temple laws. This again is a very serious charge because if it was true, Felix would be obliged to hand Paul over to the Jewish leader's jurisdiction. The basic gist of the accusations here and in all these trials is this. They charge him with acting contrary to the law of Moses or being unfaithful to the scriptures and the faith of his people. And they charge him with acting contrary to Caesar, or of being a disturber of peace and of the undermining of society. And Luke goes to great lengths to prove that neither one are the case at all. They are totally misrepresented uh, and, mis at best, misunderstood. The evidence that they present is just ridiculously weak, incredibly weak. The accompanying elders join the accusation, but Tertullus can only urge Felix to cross-examine Paul to find out the truth of his things. They didn't bring any witnesses. And in Roman law and in Roman jurisprudence, they should have provided witnesses who saw Trophimus with Paul in the temple, thus desecrating it. But there was no one there. Why? Because it didn't happen. So, as usual, Tertullus is pinning his case on the hope that Paul, given enough rope, will say something to hang himself. That's what he's hoping for. Perhaps Tertullus and company was so self-deceived that they thought Paul would admit to some of these things. But what about Paul's defense? What about his confident defense of himself against these accusations. In verses 11 through 13 and verses 17 through 19, Paul takes on the first and the third charge that he has disturbed the peace in general and broken temple law in particular. 
My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone or stirring up a crowd in the synagogue or anywhere else in the city. In other words, the rioting and disturbance was called, caused completely by his opponents and his attackers. He continue, uh, continually points out that the accusations are unsubstantiated and can easily be refuted by recourse to eyewitnesses such as Claudius Lysias, who was there, about the incident at the temple. Then in verses 17 through 19, he cannily challenges them to explain why they could not even make the charge stick, that is, the incident in the temple, how they could not even make the charge stick in front of the Sanhedrin council. Here, he made a great move. He refers to his hearing before the Jewish court in uh, chapter 23 early. This is a great move. Paul is pointing out that he has already appeared before the highest Jewish court of appeal, and they failed to find him guilty of any of these things. So in summary, if neither Claudius Lysias, the Roman tribune, nor the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council made up of Sadducees and Pharisees, could find fault with him, why should there be any question now? Very persuasive, powerful defense. The remaining objection to Paul is that he is a leader of a sect and therefore not being true to the faith of his people. Paul will not admit that Christianity is a sect, but only that they call it a sect. Rather, he makes four serious assertions to claim that he is propounding a faith that is continuous with the biblical religion and the faith of his people. He says, first, I worship the Lord God of our fathers. The God he worships is not a different God than the one the Jews believed in. Uh, he accepts the scriptures, and it's the same God that Moses worshipped. I believe, Paul says, secondly, everything that agrees with the law and the prophets. He accepts totus scriptura, that is the whole of scripture. Thirdly, I have the same hope in God. He clings to the same promises in resurrection and judgment in the Bible that his accusers cling to. He also says, I strive also to keep my conscience clear. He is saying ultimately that he's not an innovator, that he hasn't hatched up or discovered something brand new. He worships the same God, abides by the same standards of truth, and hopes in the same salvation as they, they just haven't seen it yet, by God's grace, he had. Now, think about this for a moment. Are any of these charges against Paul also thrown at Christians today? In, in a sense, we could say absolutely, yes. The two basic accusations against Paul were that he was not being true to his own people and he was not being a good citizen of the broader society. In secular cities, when people become Christians, very similar objections are often raised against us. First, most converts find that their loyalty or ties to their family and their faith is questioned that is, new converts. Often the new Christian leaves the church he or she was reared in 
And this is inexplicable to the family who thinks of Christianity in terms of denominations and institutions rather than in terms of the new birth. A person raised Southern Baptist might become Episcopalian or Catholic, or a person raised Catholic may become a Methodist, or a person raised in Judaism may be a baptized Christian. Why does this happen? We don't become Christians until we hear the gospel and finally realize that Christianity is, in its core, a personal covenantal relationship to God as opposed to just mere doctrinal subscription and behavior. Whatever church we were reared in did not show us that uh, or our spiritual eyes were not opened at the same time. Whatever venue, church, we understand the gospel that it's usually the church we join. But the people or friends will often not understand because they still think of Christianity only in terms of institutional affiliation. Then in the case of people who were reared with no religion or some other religion, there can be a real ostracism from their family and their people. Parents who reared their child to be an atheist or to be Jewish or Buddhist may be highly offended and feel personally rejected by a child's conversion. How do we answer this? New Christians tend to be a little judgmental because they are still somewhat new to the idea of the whole concept of being saved by grace. They may quickly fall into a kind of pride and take their new faith and truth and show all their friends and family that they are lost, hell-bound, and mistaken. New Christians must realize that since they are saved by grace, we must respect other people's moral sense and wisdom, and we re must remember that only God can open eyes and hearts. Think of Lydia, the seller of purple. Second, many people in the cities feel that Christians are intolerant and even dangerous because of their narrow moral view or worldview. Though it exists in very different form today, there's still a deep suspicion that Christians are really bad citizens. That if given a chance, they would impose all of their moral views on everyone else. A hegemony. Some intemperate Christians have made public statements that lend themselves to this interpretation. The only way for Christians to show that they are good citizens is, first of all, to be a good citizen. We need to be involved in our community, not just in the Christian community, but also uh, the gospel provides great resources for treating non-believing neighbors with both humility and hope. We treat them with humility because the gospel tells us we are saved by grace alone. If you see it and you get it and they don't, it's not you, it's grace. It's that simple. You're not smarter, you're not more moral, you're not a better person, you didn't come from better stock necessarily. It's because God's grace through the Holy Spirit's ministry of healing the central blindness of your soul through regeneration, you see it, you get it, but it's not because of you. It never has been because of you. You're not better than them in that way. It is purely an act of God's sovereign, loving grace that singles us out and draws us to the feet of the Savior. 
And so, when we're dealing with unbelieving people or secular people or neighbors or friends who are not believers, there should be within us a real strong dose of humility because we treat them with humility because the gospel tells us we're saved by grace alone. Thus, our non-believing neighbors may have moral sense and wisdom that we may not have. Or, because of common grace, we should expect to learn from them. The gospel of grace leads us to look at unsaved people with this kind of respect, while a religion of works would never do so. If you believe that what you do, your works, your attempts at righteousness are the foundation of what saves you before the face of God, then you will look down on people who don't do the good works that you think you're doing. And then you become a very despicable person. <laughs> I don't know anybody that likes self-righteous people. I think if you know you're self-righteous, you don't like that about yourself. I, I call it the halitosis of the soul. Halitosis is bad breath. Self-righteousness is the halitosis of the soul. Usually when you have bad breath, you're not aware of it, but boy, everybody else is that gets close to you. And so the good news about Christianity is, is that we have an opportunity to build bridges through which we can share the gospel of grace. It leads us to respect other people while a religion of works will never do so. We treat them with hope because the gospel tells us that our salvation is a miracle. We were not saved, again, because we're so wise and so rational and so educated and so spiritually open. Therefore, we can have hope for anyone, even the most closed and seemingly alienated uh, person from Christ. If we treat those around us with respect and hope, if we involve ourselves in human community, not just the Christian community, then we will turn away the charge that Christians are not good citizens. There is a tendency for Christians to gravitate and pull away inside the fortress from the world outside. It is a move of self-protection, shall we say. And we see that often in fear. And some people try to come up with a biblical mandate to do so, but that's very carefully nuanced. But what I'm trying to say is, I violated all of this when I became a new Christian. I remember when I was a new Christian, I wanted to go to every one of my non-Christian friends and tell them my testimony and what had happened to me. But I soon found out that they were not nearly as excited about it as I was. As a matter of fact, I didn't have to get rid of my Christian friends, I mean non-Christian friends. They got rid of me because I was so obnoxious. That was part of the reason. The other reason was they were sensitive. I even got in a car and drove from Memphis, Tennessee to, uh, what's that town north of Denver? Um, Fort Collins, Colorado. My older brother lived there. And I took a good friend with me, and the purpose of my visiting my brother in Colorado was to tell him about Jesus. And I just knew if he could hear me talk to him about what had happened to me, he would most certainly stand up and say, uh, like the Ethiopian eunuch, what must I do to be saved? And I probably would have baptized him at that point if he prayed and repented and said the right words. But that is not the reception I got. And we became quite hostile toward one another. And so if you have a family that you're with visiting, and some of the members of that family are non-Christian, 
it's sometimes difficult to maintain the right humility and hope at the same time in that context. Okay, well, there's more. And the next thing I want to talk about is the third thing. Uh, Felix delays the um, verdict. It's interesting. You, you might want a little background on this little couple, Felix and Drusilla. Uh, it's almost like a, a gossip item, but it's true. It's important to know the background information about the prominent persons before whom Paul testified. Antonius Felix, procurator, that is imperial governor of Judea, from A.D. 52 to 59, was a commoner not an equestrian. He was not of nobility, from which nearly all high Roman officials came. His unprecedented rise from the humble social origins to his royal position was owed to the influence of his brother, Pallas, who had much influence at the Roman court under Emperor, Emperor Claudius. During his term of office, several Jewish uprisings occurred, and Felix put them down with such extreme ruthlessness that he alienated most of the moderate Jews, which in turn led to worse political unrest. Eventually, he was relieved of his duties because of how heavy-handed he was, and it backfired on him so badly. Felix, at the time of meeting Paul, was married to Drusilla, the youngest daughter of the Jewish king Herod Agrippa I, whose death is described in Acts chapter 12. All historical accounts report that Drusilla was drop-dead gorgeous, a ravishing beauty. Originally, she was betrothed to the crown prince of Commagene in Asia Minor. But the marriage did not take place because the prince would not convert to Judaism. Instead, she married the king of Emesa, a small state in Syria. But according to Jewish historian Josephus, Felix seduced her with the help of a Cypriot magician. I don't know. I don't know how that happened. Well, we, don't, we don't get much out of that, but it did. And she left her husband to marry him. At the time of this particular incident, Paul, with Paul, she was not yet 20 years old. Portius Festus, who replaces Felix as governor, only served two years. We know very little of him, except that during his term there was little of the brutality that marked the administrations of both his predecessors and successors. It's thus fair to assume he was more judicious and fair-minded as a man than any other governor. Now, notice that Felix and Drusilla were interested in Paul's message. It says that Felix already knew about the way. That's how they distinguished Christianity from Judaism, by calling it the way. Felix's attitude toward Paul was not just politically ambivalent, but also spiritually ambivalent and very conflicted. He was intrigued, he was interested, not just in Paul's case, but also in Paul's message. There are at least two hints with regard to this interest. First, Luke may be hinting that his interest had preceded the meeting with Paul because verse 22 tells us he was well acquainted with the way. That is Christianity. 
That's a fairly surprising remark. Why would a Roman governor be well acquainted with this still very marginal religious phenomenon? When we look, uh, there are some specific fac factors that probably boil down to uh, the cons uh, uh, to two basic motives that is considering Felix and the rest. Why do people hide my stuff from me? I know it's here somewhere. Here it is. The factors that probably were most involved in Felix boil down to two basic motives, self-interest and self-protection. Uh, again, he was well acquainted with it. Did the governor's knowledge of Christian teaching th therefore precipitate a sudden decision to adjourn the trial, lest Paul's defense invade issues that Felix's guilty conscience wanted to have left unexplored? Or had the defense rested so that the prosecution and defendant were awaiting the judge's verdict? In that case, Luke means that Felix knew the Christian community well enough to conclude that the charges made against Paul were baseless. Yet, instead of vindicating Paul and offending Jewish dignitaries with whom uh, Felix's relations were already rocky, the govern po governor postponed his decision with the lame excuse that he needed to consult the tribune Lysias before announcing the verdict. The Tribune's letter had made clear that this investigation turned up no evidence, that Paul had co uh, not committed any serious crime. So Felix was obviously buying time. His sympathy for Paul's cause and respect for Paul's Roman citizenship found expression in his orders that Paul be granted a measure of freedom while still locked up and that none of his friends be prevented for caring for him. Perhaps Luke and other friends shared Paul's midnight ride or made their way to Caesarea uh, in the days after his escape. A week before, Paul had been pummeled in a temple courtyard and slapped in the face. Then he endured a hard 60-mile ride. Perhaps now at last, his wounds received medical attention from Luke, the beloved physician. Something in Paul's defense piqued the governor's curiosity about the hope that gave the apostles such calm confidence. Calm confidence. With his wife Drusilla, he summoned Paul to a private audience at which the apostle presented his message about faith in Messiah Jesus. The faith, that faith, pointed to Christ's cross as, a revealing, uh, as revealing God's righteous wrath against human sin. A preview of the coming judgment as well. As the gracious ways of escape for those who turn from their self-absorbed lives and submit to the risen Lord. Paul's discussion, it's interesting how Paul uh, summarized his discussion, or Luke summarized Paul's discussion. First, he discussed self-control. That terrified the governor. Uh, he also talked about the resurrection. And he also talked about the coming judgment. He brought the interview to a sudden close, promising to recall Paul when convenient. 
His ambivalence brings to mind Herod Antipas's mixed reaction to John the Baptist. On the one hand, eager to hear the prophet whom he imprisoned, and on the other hand, because of John, rebuked his theft of his brother's wife. Felix did send for Paul repeatedly, repeatedly, uh, over the next two years, but not to hear more about the Messiah and the justice and self-control and hope that the Holy Spirit imparts, Felix hoped that Paul, a citizen of Palestine, would offer a bribe to buy his release. Such bribes were strictly forbidden and harshly punished, but Felix was not above corning, cutting corners if he could get away with it. On the other hand, keeping Paul in custody ingratiated him with the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. When recalled to Rome to be reprimanded and narrowly escaped punishment, Felix left Paul in custody, his legal case undecided. Felix preferred response to life-challenging truth and costly decisions was procrastination. It did not serve him well in the end. Upon reaching Rome, he dropped from history's pages while his prisoners' words still changed the lives of many. Paul shared the gospel with both Felix and Drusilla. And he spoke very candidly. He reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, all of which pricked the heart of Felix. Felix understood righteousness, and he understood he didn't have it. And Paul's preaching of the gospel displays a better righteousness than your own and than my own. It is the righteousness of Christ Jesus. He himself obeyed and fulfilled the covenant of works on our behalf to save us. I thought we're saved by grace, pastor, not by works. You're never saved by your works, but you're saved by the works of Jesus Christ. He did for you what you can never do for yourself. He achieved perfect, personal, perpetual obedience to the entirety of God's law. And his sterling, perfect record becomes mine and yours when by faith we look outside of ourselves and lay hold of Christ. And then he declares us to be forever right with him under his favor. That is exactly what Felix needed to hear. Because he had no hope in his own righteousness. And Felix, if it's one thing Felix like, it's almost like Paul is talking to Felix about justification, sanctification, and eschatology. The eternal hope. Second, he talks to him about self-control. Felix, you're destroying yourself by all of these decisions you impulsively make that destroy and hurt people in yourself and the whole world. And you can't control yourself. You can't fix yourself. But once you believe, once you look outside of yourself and by faith cling to Christ, He not only forgives your sin, He not only declares you're righteous, but He places His Spirit within you and makes you a new creature in Christ Jesus and gives you a fighting chance against the lust of your soul that destroy you. And finally, He talked about the hope of the resurrection. The hope of the resurrection is not only when I die, absence from the body is presence with the Lord for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. One day, 
When Christ returns, I will receive a new body and will forever live with him. And every day that I go through and live through and goes by, the more I long for that new body and that resurrection hope, that hope that grounds you. It gives you a security that is unshakable. And if there's anything Felix and Drusilla were, it was in radically insecure. And so are you. And so am I. If we're not trusting in Christ. So how does a person do that? Well, when I was a little boy, I thought you had to walk up front. I grew up in a Baptist church. And they would give an invitation at the end of the service. And it was like Jesus is standing down here. And if you want to be saved, you have to get up out of your seat. You have to come down here and pray a prayer with the pastor. And that was the routine. That was how we did it. And so I remember we had a Texas evangelist preaching at our church. And what I remember most about him was he had a white suit, a white tie, a big white belt, white shoes, white socks, dark black hair, except he had a skunk line in his hair, white hair. And this man could pray. I never heard anybody preach like him because my pastor was an intellectual and sort of uh, not very confrontive. But, but this guy was in your face. And so I was sitting there at nine years old one Sunday morning and a good friend of mine named Buddy decided to go up front. And so we were, we were standing up to sing and he tried to go by me. I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going up, <laughs> which meant I'm going up to be saved. And I said, uh, well... I guess it's time for me to do that too, so I'll go with you. I don't think that was salvation. I don't think it was at all, because at 19 years of age, God's Spirit changed me into a new person. But I, I say all that to say this. How does it happen? The Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner, save me. It's that simple. And no one can call Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. But He will give you the desire to do so. And that is our longing and heart for all of you. That you would come to know Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. It just lays us uh, down and breaks us and then it makes us so thrilled and happy to be united to Christ. We're so thankful that you love us like you do and that you provided for us everything we need to live before you in your mercy. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, we pray that you would continue to minister to us through word, spirit, and sacrament. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.